man of screen. In the great hall of the Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes, created from the cosmic legends of the universe. Superman. Wonder Woman. Batman. Aquaman. And those three junior super friends, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. Their mission, to fight injustice, to right that which is wrong, and to serve all mankind. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 97 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and this episode is going to see me conclude my coverage of the initial season of the Super Friends animated series. This is what I call season one, just titled Super Friends. And I'm going to finish this off with the episodes The Planet Splitter and The Watermen. And I don't know how much I can relate to you, how relieved I am to be reaching the end of season one. There'll be some format changes that will make this series easier for me to cover going forward. Even though the show is going to continue to be an hour, I'm not going to be covering the entire hour going forward, and I'll talk a little bit about that when I get to season two, but it's the end of these 43-minute animated cartoons because I've said it before on several episodes that 43 minutes for these episodes is just too long. The story is far too stretched out, and it seems like a lot of antics by the Junior Super Friends are added in to stretch the episode out to the 43 minutes. And to be honest, for 43 minutes, these stories are not interesting enough to justify that runtime. So I'm going to be very happy to see more segments next season and shorter stories. But before I get to uh, this week's coverage, I've got some feedback to address. This is, as you guessed, from friend of the show, Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on episode 87, in which I talked one of the latter uh, episodes covering the Filmation cartoons. So Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. At one point in this episode, you wondered if any kids were listening to this podcast and suggested that your listeners were probably mostly middle-aged men. Well, although I'm a kid at heart, I'm not really a kid, nor am I, middle- nor am I middle-aged, I'm old. I assume, though, that I'm toward the upper end of the age of your listeners. Of the segments in this episode, for some reason, I have a really strong memory of watching Luminians on the Loose when it aired originally. I'm not sure what it was about that one that made it stick in my mind all these years, but I think maybe it was the odd look of the Luminians combined with how scared of them Luthor seemed to be. As you said, you don't often see Luthor scared of anything or anyone. I very much enjoyed the part in The Mysterious Mr. Mist, where Superman fought Mr. Mist in the guise of Superboy. That was unusual and fun, and also a treat to see the Superman Museum and the Superboy Room in it. Now there's a museum I'd love to go to. I have been to the Super Museum in Metropolis, Illinois, which I enjoyed thoroughly but the actual Superman Museum would be amazing. The Superboy segments, even though shorter than the Superman ones, were fun. As I've mentioned in the past, I love seeing Superboy and Crypto having adventures together. It was interesting, as you noted, how people often seem to forget that Superboy himself is an alien from another world, and, at least in Space Refugees, Superboy points out that he is a refugee from a lost world. I have a soft spot for Superboy or Superman acting as a defender of the, oppo- of the oppressed. It really goes back to the Golden Age roots of the character, and to my mind, it's one of his defining character traits. Hope you and your family had a good Christmas, and you got to go to the movies with your stepson. Live long and prosper. Dave. 
so yes, Dave, I'll, uh, I guess I'll address this letter from backwards to forward. We, I mentioned we did have a good Christmas and, uh, I did get to go to the movies with my stepson over the, uh, Christmas break. Actually, we got kind of lucky because when we had him for Thanksgiving, just, you know, there wasn't enough time in the four day weekend to take him to see Justice League. And I felt bad about him because I had promised him and I felt bad about missing that. But <clears throat> I think it was on Wednesday of the week after Christmas. I just kind of took a, uh, Kind of went on my phone, just kind of on a lark, and checked to see if Justice League was still playing anywhere. And uh, sure enough, Justice League was playing in one theater. So we, he and I went to see that on a Wednesday, and I was happy to report that he enjoyed it. You know, he is uh, nine years old, so he is not nearly as uh, demanding with these characters as some of us old-time fans are. You know, he enjoyed the film on the level that he enjoyed it. You know, he enjoyed the action. He enjoyed the Flash's action. There's no baggage for him with uh, Grant Gustin. He just sees the Flash or Superman or Batman. You know, so. And, you know, the way that movie was structured, moving like a, as Michael Bailey says, moving like a freight train. You know, there was no BS in that plot. Something I really enjoyed. So, so yeah, I got to take him to the movies twice that week. Uh, and the second time we went to see... Star Wars uh, The Last Jedi, which ironically is also out on Blu-ray at the moment, and uh, I think he might have enjoyed that more than I did. I haven't had a chance yet to uh, give Last Jedi a rewatch, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how it plays the second time, you know, now that, you know, expectations are out of the way. All all I'll say about The uh, Last uh, Jedi is I really enjoyed the stuff with Luke and Rey. I pretty much could have done without the rest of the movie, but I'm hoping when I get a chance to uh, rewatch that, that I have kind of a different feeling on it. So, and as far as Dave's comments on the episode, yeah, one of the things that stands out about the Luminians on the loose is that Luthor was scared of the Luminians after he could no longer control them. And Dave mentions that he, in his uh, talk about the uh, mysterious Mr. Mist, that he has been to the Superman Museum, to the Super Museum in Metropolis. And, uh, that is definitely on my bucket list. I really do want to go to, uh, make a pilgrimage one day to uh, Metropolis, Illinois. I'd love to go to the uh, Superman celebration, but that's definitely not in the cards. Right now, as I do have school-aged children, and the uh, second weekend in June is not a time for me really to be traveling. Maybe someday, I hope. Like I said, Superman celebration for me is on the bucket list. And uh, Dave is also mentioning that Superboy is defending the uh, space refugees. I think, as I recall, this is the episode where uh, they're trying to keep those aliens from settling in the valley or something like that. But yes, we often forget, you know, we so much emphasis is placed on Superboy slash Superman as a strange visitor from another planet that we do forget that he is a refugee, a survivor of a great disaster, survived the apocalypse. He's a survivor and therefore, you know, a refugee, even if nobody, you know, thinks about that too much. And that is the case. And lately, with the current political climate, shows like Supergirl have definitely been playing up the refugee status of our favorite Kryptonians. Especially with Supergirl right there in the opening. It says she's a refugee from the planet Krypton. But yes, uh, Superman is at his best when he is a defender of the oppressed and a champion of humanity. And I think sometimes amidst all the science fiction and all the Silver Age uh, silliness that... It is possible that Superman might have gotten away from being a defender of the oppressed in the minds of the masses. I think it might be jarring for some people to see uh, what a Golden Age Superman actually is. So, alright, I don't have anything else to add, and this uh, sequence of thoughts is kind of running away with me. So I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, then I'm going to come back with The Planet Splitter. Hang around, folks. Hello, podcast listener. Do you like... Ready to form Voltron! Or maybe... How about... I am Batman! 
or this is a job for Superman. Do you remember Power Rangers? Or this? Right away, Michael. Or maybe even this? Autobots transform. <laughs> How about this? By the power of Grayskull. Or maybe for the honor of Grayskull. Or have you seen the latest episode of I'm the Doctor? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then check out Charlie's Geekcast, hosted by me, Charlie Niemeyer. I'm bringing the show back to talk about all the things I enjoy. Comics, movies, TV shows, video games, and more. New and classic episodes can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com and Charlie'sGeekCast.com, as well as anywhere you get your podcasts. So check out Charlie's Geekcast. You'll enjoy it. Or your money back. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to uh, start things off with The Planet Splitter. Original broadcast date was December 15th, 1973. Guest cast included Casey Kasem as security guard number one, Danny Dark as security guard number two, Kado Wilbur, Dr. Lucius Laban, Howard Small, and Mrs. Codwallader. Casey Kasem also played the role of Jarrell. Sherry Alberoni was Lara. Olin Sewell was Lodi, or Lodi. Sherry Alberoni was Mia, Science Council member, Martha Kent, Jonathan Kent, and Mr. Warner. Not sh- entirely sure this is right, but who knows. And Norman Alden was Dr. Brown. And now for our synopsis, brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. The Trevor Alert detects a large diamond has been stolen from the County Museum of Art. Colonel Wilcox reports other diamonds larger than 100 carats have also been replaced by Zircon. Then this is what we know. The actual star of Persia has been stolen, and this relatively worthless Zircon's been put in its place. All right, super friends, any clues as to who might have taken it? The only clue we have is that a mysterious shaft of red light appeared in the museum. Uh Uh-huh. You mean this has happened before, Colonel? As a matter of fact, twice before. That's right. Just last week on the cruise ship Lorelei, the 110-carat Mandalay diamond was stolen from the captain's safe. After the appearance of a mysterious shaft of red light. And in Amsterdam, the Holland Jewelry Company reported the theft of its 120-carat Pride of the Zyder Z. After the appearance of a mysterious shaft of red light, no doubt. Precisely, Wendy. Well, then, like, there's no problem. All we have to do is find the shaft of light, and we find the diamonds. Super friends, those diamonds must be found. I take it the government suspects these thefts go further than simple robbery, Colonel Wilcox. Our government, as well as other governments. You must find the reason why only diamonds of over 100 carats are being stolen. The heroes split up to guard four remaining diamonds. Wendy and Marvin join Superman as Clark Kent to guard one diamond at a charity circus. Wendy witnesses a red beam from a circus plane and hit the tent where the diamond is. Superman is decoyed by balloons while the crooks escape. He returns to the Hall of the Justice League. As you can see, there is a miniaturized remote control device in each balloon. Holy projectors! Exactly, Robin. These balloons projected six decoy red beams. Probably a trick designed to create confusion as to the source of the seventh beam, the real red beam. Yes, enough confusion to permit the criminals to escape with the Cadwallader diamond. And there are still three 100 carat diamonds left. Aquaman, may I suggest that you quickly get back to that area where Howard Small's yacht is cruising in the North Atlantic? Of course, Superman. And I think it's essential to get there in a hurry. 
If you'll cover the Bank of London for me, Superman, I'll take Aquaman in my transparent plane. Thank you, Wonder Woman. And Robin and I better get back to Egypt. Right. The Tutankhamun tomb could be next. Superman. Yes, Robin. If the criminals use the same ruse, you know, seven different red beams, then we would need seven super friends, one on each beam to make sure that at least one of us could track the real beam. We have a simpler answer to that problem. We have? It wouldn't surprise me if Superman was thinking of attaching a microdot homing device to each diamond. Then all we'd have to do is follow the microdot signal right to the criminal's lair. Precisely what I had in mind. One more thing. Yes, Robin. I haven't seen Marvin, Wendy, or Wonder Dog. I left them at the circus. No doubt they're having a lot of fun right now on one of those wild rides. Meanwhile, Wendy and Marvin follow the circus wagon and discover the quarters of Dr. Lucius LeBon and his assistant Wilbur. Well, Wilbur, one more diamond, and my great dream will be a reality. Letting loose all those decoy balloons sure confused any would-be pursuers. I guess so. What's the matter with you? Well, it makes me sad to think that we could outwit the super friends so easily. Wilbur, why should it make you sad? You know what a great admirer of Superman I am. We'll be far more admired than Superman when we accomplish our objective. Think of the great benefits we'll bring to Earth, Wilbur. You're right, Doctor. The mineral and fuel resources are becoming more and more depleted. And we shall replenish those resources by bringing them down from Cygnus Uno. What's he talking about? I don't know, but we better tell the Super Friends. Come, Wilbur. It's time we took a first-hand look at Cygnus Uno. They're, they're coming this way. Wendy and Marvin are discovered and stowing away on the Doctor's spaceship he uses to check the planet. When Wilbur says he is a Superman fan, Marvin tells uh, Superman's origin of being sent to Earth by Jor-El and Lara, found by a couple who take him to an orphanage. Now the orphanage quickly decides to let the couple have the powerful baby. The Bond next steals another diamond in England, allowing Superman to follow the signal. Wonder Woman and Aquaman follow in her plane, as do Batman and Robin in their plane. Laban activates the splitter, but finds it has little power because Wilbur has disappeared, stealing the diamonds. Superman arrests Laban while the others stop Wilbur. Supernovas, we've got to stop it. No need for that, Robin. Dr. Laban will get very little power from his control panel. Very little power? Watch! Now you will see enormous power! What has happened to my power? My process for concentrating power from diamonds was foolproof. Perhaps. But those are not diamonds. They have to be! I stole them myself! Someone has replaced them with zircons. Nobody could do that. Nobody was at this control panel but me. And Wilbur. Wilbur? Not my trusted assistant? It couldn't be. Where is Wilbur, Doctor? I... I don't know. If Wilbur took the diamonds, I doubt very much if he's around here. Well, it'll be simple to find out where he is. One of those diamonds carries a micro-dot transmitter. Robin, activate your homing receiver. Right, Batman. The needle points straight down. He's trying to escape through the subterranean coal mine tunnels. Let's go after him. You and Wendy take Wonder Dog out to the back plane and wait. I'll show you where he is. Sorry, Dr. Laban. 
You and I are going to the police station where you can explain about the diamonds. But, but Wilbur, he'll get away. Not with the super friends after him. Later, Batman and Superman say that a planet splitter would not have worked because Wilbur faked the, te the test results. All right, so this episode is chock full of DC Comics lore. Not only does this episode give a pretty complete origin story for Superman, but it also alludes to Robin's origin as he casually mentions that that he casually mentions that his parents were killed and he was taken in by Batman. The orphanage uh, shown in this episode was referred to as the county orphanage rather than the Smallville orphanage, which basically implies that the uh, that the orphanage was under the legal jurisdiction of the county rather than the city. However, since the comics set on Earth 2 and Earth 1 have always called it the Smallville or Orphanage, and since the orphanage shown in this episode was presented as a story told by Marvin, we can assume that he is an unreliable narrator and the story is not true. And we're going to find that Marvin's description of the uh, Kryptonian rocket will look much different than it did in other episodes, such as Krypton Syndrome, Secret Origins of the Super Friends, and The Adoption. So apparently we're going to revisit Superman's origin later uh, in the series. And uh, Jack Zor was referenced, not by name, in this episode. Uh, Morgan Edge may have been referenced. I don't recall having hearing his name, but the narrator does mention that Clark Kent works for Galaxy Communications, of which Morgan Edge was CEO. And Tony Zuko was referenced as the killer of Robin's parents. So, this episode starts with a diamond exhibit, and this thing is under heavy guard until a red beam makes the diamond disappear and then reappear. And, you know, right off the bat, you know, I'm, I haven't come to these cartoons yesterday. I'm pretty much guessing that the diamond was replaced with a forgery. And when we get to the Hall of the Justice League, the animation looks a little wonky in this episode. There's a whole bunch of lights on the back wall, and I don't recall having seen them before. It's almost as if new artists are drawing a different room. And even some of the characters do look a little bit off-model in this episode. So the Super Friends show up, and the guards are confused. You know, they think everything's okay with the diamond, so... Superman mentions that the Trouble Alert alerted them to a crime. How... and I'm starting to wonder, how does the Trouble Alert work? You know, does it sense danger? Does it monitor al alarms? I mean, how exactly does this thing detect trouble? It's unknown. So, of course, the Superman uses his supervision to detect that the uh, Star of Persia, that's the uh, name of the diamond that was stolen, is fake. Batman and Robin are there, but serve no purpose. And, uh, as usual, the uh, government has the information about previous uh, red beams, but have not decided to notify anybody until now. And, again, our only representative of the U.S. government is Colonel Wilcox. And uh, Wonder Woman also mentions that she knows about these red beams, but, you know, apparently didn't think to mention these until now. So here we've got our bald scientist. This is uh, Dr. Lucius Laban. He is quite bald with glasses, and he could almost be Lex Luthor, who we have not yet seen in this series. But he's not. He's Lucius Laban. We will eventually see a uh, more villainous uh, Silver Age uh, Silver Age Lex Luthor in uh, upcoming seasons. And uh, basically, uh, Lucius Laban needs... Diamonds of 100 carats or more. And there are happen to be four remaining diamonds uh, of uh, sufficient carats. There are four super friends. What a coincidence. And this is where Robin casually mentions his time on the trapeze and that his parents were killed. Apparently he's over so over it that he can just kind of mention it casually. And uh, he really doesn't mention his time on the trapeze so much as Batman mentioned that Robin has taught him a few tricks on the trapeze. And Batman and Robin seem to have a hey bro moment. And we're complete with some high fives. And, uh, so all the Super Friends go off looking, checking out their respective diamonds, except Superman goes as Clark Kent, who, in this carnation of, uh, animation, works for Galaxy Communications, as he does in the comics. He's, uh, wearing his classic, uh, blue suit and square glasses and red tie, and, like I said, looking very much like his, uh, pre-crisis comic book counterpart. 
And I think this is one of the rare adapted Supermen not to work at the Daily Planet. Even though he will work at Galaxy Communications uh, through the 70s. The uh, Richard Donner Superman movie that that I'm going to be talking about toward the end of this year. Puts him back at the Daily Planet. I believe when that film was produced, he was still a TV newsman. And I see what the comics were doing there by putting him on TV. I mean, at some point, newspapers are going to be gone, and which is, sucks for me because I happen to work at one. But, you know, it seemed to be the um, right modernization at that time to put Clark on, on television. And I'm not sure when he went back to the Daily Planet, but he was on the news for most of the 70s and into the 80s. I think he was restored to the Daily Planet before... Crisis on Infinite Earths, but he's been pretty much a largely a newspaper reporter since the post-Crisis uh, reboot, and it'll be interesting to see as newspapers dwindle and become far less relevant to modern society, where Clark Kent and Lois Lane are going to work. They're probably going to have to work at some kind of news uh, multimedia organization or something, but it'll be interesting to see what happens when that time finally does come. And, you know, I'm just going to mention that they put him at Galaxy... This Super Friends cartoon puts him a galaxy because there's probably no reason to believe that he'll necessarily be back at the Daily Planet. And the Danny Dark, though, I'm glad he doesn't play Clark Kent very often because his voice is really no different, so it's not really an effective disguise. And, and as far as his animation goes, his hat looks a little frumpy. Definitely approaching the voices the way George Reeves did. Very little difference between Clark and Superman. And we kind of get a shirt rip in this episode as the red light focuses on the, on the rich woman. It's not an iconic shot. It's just basically Clark taking off his suit, you know. You don't get a really good money shot of uh, the S underneath the shirt. Just, he pulls it off and he goes on his way. So these balloons are going into the air and they cause all kinds of havoc at the fair as elephants panic and run off and, and gorillas get loose. And all the while, Superman is gathering balloons. I was kind of hoping for at least a minute or so of Superman rounding up the circus animals, but well, we don't get any of that. So, Wendy and Marvin are on a roller coaster and they uh, spot, spot the balloon and actually they ride it again to try to find something. Wendy finds a circus truck, and quickly thereafter, I don't know how they get off the roller coaster in time to trail this truck, but somehow, by the power of plot, they do. And the kids, I think they lo- they lost the truck as they're following on their bicycles. How these two kids can keep tra- keep up with a truck on their bicycles is beyond me. But they do tr- track the truck back to an observatory. Wendy decides to ring the bell, and for once, Marvin is the voice of reason. At least until Wonder Dog opens the door. And so, they sneak in. Now we're going to find out the uh, Dr. LeBond's henchman, Wilbur, is an admirer of Superman, and he's upset that they were able to defeat the Super Friends so easily. And this is where we get a hint of uh, Professor LeBond's plan. His plan is to replenish the Earth's natural resources by bringing them down to Earth from this other planet. Right now, he's uh, scouting this planet called Sigmus Uno. So Wendy and Marvin trying to run away, and it's kind of hilarious watching Marvin try to uh, open a metal gate. And uh, we're going to find, when they fail to escape, we're going to find that Dr. LeBon has a flying saucer. Because you're a mad scientist, it's the 70s, you want to split a planet, you need an interstellar spacecraft. So Superman has a bunch of balloons at the Hall of Justice that were used to confuse him into chasing the wrong one. Robin suggests that they need seven super friends to follow all seven beams, but Batman mentions that they just need to put a homing beacon on the beam, on Diamond. And Robin seems to be the only person who even notices Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog are gone. I mean, you, you see it throughout the season, this constant dismissal of the junior super friends almost makes you wonder why uh, they keep coming back. But Superman reveals that he left them at the circus, and like I said, I think part of their mission is to ignore... The kids or just leave them places where the super friends hope they'll just stay out of the way of the plot. 
So, when Superman mentions that they are having a wild ride, the show cuts to Dr. LeBond's flying saucer. Because, you know, like I said, the scientist needs to go on a space flight. And, of course, uh, Wonder Dog has found lunch. Because they just happen to be in the galley with a whole a nice uh, spread of meats that Wonder Dog can chow down on. So Marvin tries to show Wonder Dog the beautiful view. And I'm looking at this animation. is uh, The animation sh- the animators sh- put a lot of uh, c- celestial bodies into space. I mean, I don't know. I've never been to space. But, you know, I guess, you know, I've heard that the Earth is very beautiful as seen from space. You know, kind of hanging like a big jewel against the blackness. But I don't know if there are any astronauts out there listening to this. But I have no idea what you see when you're in space. I mean, is it a starry sky like we see on things like Star Wars and Star Trek, or is it just black? My guess would be maybe it's kind of a starry sky, just, you know, kind of based on what I see when I look up on a clear night from my house. But, you know, I don't know. And I don't know what Marvin would necessarily see on an interstellar flight. Would would they see much movement at all? Now, Wendy mentions that the uh, small compartment they're in is giving her claustrophobia. Personally, you know, when I'm... Comparing it to what we see of the cockpit where Dr. Laban and Wilbur are, the place they are seems a lot bigger. And we do we do get an outside shot that shows us that the galley is below the cockpit. And, you know, of course, as they move along and try to move about the ship, they get caught. Because that's what Wendy and Marvin are best at. So Laban says that they're borrowing diamonds, you know, just kind of like Minnie Max and uh, Minnie and Max Moles were in the uh, Mysterious Moles episodes. And uh, Laban and Wilbur get the same lecture that the moles got, that you can't borrow something before asking for it. Like I mentioned before, if you borrow something without permission, it's stealing. There's really no two ways about that. So Wendy points out the uh, hypocrisy of Wilbur's uh, admiration of Superman, and they hear that Laban is going to destroy the planet, and Marvin uses this opportunity to tell us Superman's origin story. The animation of Krypton is very loyal to Silver Age comics. Jor-El has the uh, green uniform with the sun emblem and a little red cape that doesn't hang nearly as low as Superman's does. And I wonder why they had Casey Kasem voicing Jarrell and not Danny Dark. It's kind of weird that Superman's father sounds like Robin. And I also find it ironic that the unwise Kryptonian Science Council meets in the quote-unquote Hall of Wisdom. This sequence is nothing we haven't seen before. Jarrell proposes a fleeing the planet, and the Science Council, in this case, is afraid of being deposed and tries to bring uh, charges against Jarrell. Apparently, the last time somebody uh, suggested spaceflight, they tried to unseat the ruling council. So, the uh, ship is initially large enough to carry both Lara and uh, Kal-El, but... And Jarrell's warnings to the council will get him fired from his job as the planet's astrophysicist. And I love, just as the head of the council asked if uh, Jarrell saw any quote-unquote doom, the ground starts shaking. Which, at this point, he's feeling some doom. And all of a sudden now, the head of the council wants Jarrell's help. And he doesn't help them because it's too late. And I got to imagine Jarella's thinking, deuces, you guys don't deserve it. So like uh, other versions, most notably the Adventures of Superman with George Reeves, Jarell tries to send Lara in the spaceship as well, but she refuses and the baby is sent off on his own. You know, just something that dawned on me as I was watching this, uh, Jarell explains what the powers that Kal-El will develop on Earth, you know. He doesn't seem very concerned about Kal-El not making it to Earth. They just take that as a given. <laughs> You know, the story shows us the Kents picking up the boy and uh, taking him to the uh, orphanage. Again, it isn't until 1978 in Superman the movie that this is taken out of Superman lore. And starting with that film, the uh, Kents kind of take him home and just start raising him and go from there without any uh, official adoption papers. Later incarnations like Smallville bring back the adoption angle, but for a time it does disappear. And I'm also wondering if Marvin is still telling the story at this point. If he is, he's coming dangerously close to giving up Superman's secret identity. 
And the origin hits all the beats, showing the needle break on Cal's body, and just the, kind of the way he's uh, terrorizing the nurses and doctors at the orphanage kind of reminds me of a Super Baby comic that I recently read. You know, the, the baby is holding the doctor over his head, and he's terrified, and <laughs> this episode makes it seem like the orphanage gives the kid to the Kents just to get rid of him, which, you know, I've been reading some some old stuff lately, and I did read a couple of Super Baby stories recently, one of which was... The unwanted super tot or something like that, or the super baby that wasn't wanted, whatever the hell they called it. Basically, they can't lose Clark on a cruise. He dives off the boat after a fish, which is one which is one of the reasons why you don't take a child on a cruise with you. And he gets adopted by like five or six different sets of parents, and he just they can't handle his ability, so they all give him back. This kind of reminds me of that because the orphanage can't deal with him. They give him to the Kent just so he goes. So. The uh, flashback ends with them deciding to uh, give Clark his name. <laughs> and just to see what Do- he can get out of Marvin, Dr. Laban asks what the parents named him. But Marvin said that's top secret. So I just hope he didn't mention the name Kent at all. Something like that would be all Laban would need to figure out the rest of the story based on what Marvin just told him. So back in the here and now, we catch up with the Super Friends as trackers are being installed on the diamonds. Robin jokes about how they should have rented an air-conditioned camel in Egypt. Thought that joke fell a little flat. And so now, well, Dr. LeBon and Wilbur and all them are back on Earth. I'm not necessarily sure they did whatever it is they were doing in space, but they're back on Earth. And the diamond is stolen right in front of Superman and the guards he's with, who don't believe it, until they notice the tracker Superman installed on the diamond is gone. So now, Superman, who is faster than a speeding bullet and all that, goes to a radio and plays the air traffic controller for a few minutes. Back on the spaceship, Dr. Laban isn't going to drop the kids off anywhere until he splits the planet. And apparently that beacon is driving Wonder Dog crazy, so it's probably giving him a headache. The beacon, you know, Superman is the one thing alive with less than four legs that can hear that frequency. Now Aquaman is in the invisible jet with Wonder Woman, and he reminds Wonder Woman not to catch up with Dr. Laban. They're in an invisible jet. Are they? Is he worried they're going to be seen? Would they see Wonder Woman and Aquaman just kind of sitting in the cockpit with nothing around them? I don't know. What does the invisible jet look like to an outsider? I would assume it doesn't look like anything. They don't see it. I I, I doubt they would just see two superheroes sitting in the, in moving air. I imagine that's just a visual aid for us so we can see that they're there. You know, it's like when aliens talk to each other on TV. We'll take the Kryptonian sequence, for example. Yeah, the, we're understanding them in English, but... It's our understanding that they're speaking Kryptonian or, or whatever their na- native language is. We just can't be bothered reading subtitles. And on a kid's show, it's not on a, all kids watch just could probably read. So you want your character speaking the language of the viewers. So now Dr. LeBond is going to tell the kids his plan. He's going to split Sigma's Uno. The device basically cuts it like a cantaloupe. And he's going to put half of it in orbit to bring natural resources back to Earth. You know, natural resources that man has already depleted. So he's not considering the consequences of bringing another celestial body into orbit. It's a good thing Wendy and Marvin are concerned about these things, but Laban dismisses them. And it seems here as though Wilbur is having a change of heart, and he's ready to leave, but... And then when Superman arrives, he seems to want to wait for Wonder Woman and Aquaman. I'm not... Is he afraid of this old man and his assistant? I don't know. So Wendy and Marvin try to sell Laban on how the Super Friends will help him, because he wants to help people, but he's not having it. He doesn't want to be laughed at. Okay. So Wendy yells he's going to split a planet, and then everyone just kind of stands there. And uh, Superman somehow knew this machine wasn't going to work. So he must have realized at some point that Wilbur took the diamonds for himself. So now we're going to have a minecart chase as uh, Wilbur runs into the circus wagon where Wendy and Marvin are screwing around. And Wilbur gets caught. 
when Marvin accidentally sends him toward the ceiling in a bucket. So apparently uh, Wilbur was smarter than we thought as he manipulated Dr. Laban into thinking his plan would work so he could get the diamonds. So there was no planet splitting. It was never going to happen. The natural resources were never going to come to Earth. And Dr. Laban, you know, he wants to replace what humanity has wasted, which is a noble thing, but, you know, trying to bring another half a planet into the solar system is not the way to do it. And I will say this, before I started watching this episode, I was really looking forward to it because the thumbnail on the uh, website that I used to watch these episodes was Jor-El. So I knew it was showing Superman's origin. And, you know, despite the fact that I've seen just about every Superman origin there is to see out there, it's always interesting to see another interpretation for the first time, to see how different writers adapted the different, the same story for different media. You know, I'm not one of those people who gets bent out of shape overseeing the origin a bunch of times. You know, I'm at points where I don't miss them if they're not there, but it's always interesting to see how different writers tackle the same thing. So, I enjoyed this episode, very Superman-centric, and, you know, that you can never go wrong with that for me. So now I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and then we're going to come back with The Watermen. Hang around, folks. Take the Earth's mightiest heroes, each an invincible champion of justice, and band them together to assemble the legendary Justice League of America. For 261 issues and three annuals, the DC Universe was defended from threats on Earth and beyond by this legendary team, operating from a cave in Happy Harbor to a satellite orbiting 22,300 miles above the Earth to uh, Detroit. Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast, will follow the League through all their evolutions. Please join your host, Mike Peacock, as I seek to cover all of the issues of the classic pre-crisis Justice League of America series. Through the magic of the JLA transporter, each issue will be randomized, with special episodes covering a complete story arc if needed. Along with the issue coverage, we shall also look at what the then-current members of the Justice League were up to in solo appearances and other comics for the JLA cover month issue. So do not hesitate to activate your JLA signal device for Justice's First Dawn, a classic Justice League of America podcast on classicjla.podbean.com or by subscribing through iTunes. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to finish things up with The Watermen. Original broadcast date was December 22nd, 1973, and our synopsis is brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Superman and Wonder Woman respond to emergencies. A coral reef is breaking up, causing flooding, and a red tide is reported by Colonel Wilcox. The emergencies on the ocean are being dealt with, but reports indicate that the cause of the dangerous conditions has not yet been discovered. Since Professor Mady's research submarine is in the endangered area, I suggest, Batman and Robin, that you use it to investigate. Will do, Colonel Wilcox. Batman, Robin, with Wendy and Marvin go to a professor with a submarine. Marvin thinks he sees two people walking on water, but they have gone when Wendy looks. They are Hollow and Zara, two aliens from a water world. Their mother spaceship is in the lake. They need fuel created from silicon after being damaged in a meteor storm. The aliens are using a smaller ship to process seawater, extracting silicon. Unfortunately, the process causes the red tide and sterilizes the seawater. Hollow delays Batman and the heroes with the professor, while Zara moves the ship to an algae forest. Eventually, Aquaman nearly captures Hollow and sees the small ship. Batman and Robin are able to track down the lake where Hollow hides. Superman and Wonder Woman help catch the mothership. We wish to be friends. 
I'm sure we could be if we got to know and understand one another. I'm sure we can be. To be perfectly honest, we did not think the Earth people would mind if we upset the ocean life. Why? Is it because we use the ocean as kind of a trash can all the time? I suppose anyone from outer space could come to that conclusion. But that still doesn't make it right. People can't take what they want without regard for the rights of others. I must agree. I can only say that we were desperate for silicon, for fuel to get us home. My word, two-thirds of the sand on the beach is silicon. And if that silicon is removed, it wouldn't upset the ecological balance. It only has to be refined. We've never developed that process because we're water people, I suppose. We could give you all the silicon you need. Then all our troubles are over. And so are ours. Pardon me, miss, but is our water polo game for this afternoon all off? Maybe not. Do you know how to play water polo? Sure, like a porpoise. But how did you learn how to play it? While we were observing the Earth people. I'd like to play. Then why don't you come along? If it's all right. Of course it's all right. We have some technical problems to work out. All right, so we're going to have an episode with some water people. Yeah, for as heavy as the previous episode featured Superman. This episode is going to feature Aquaman pretty heavily. This was the season finale, let's call it, for Super Friends. And this is really the end of the of these first series, quote-unquote, because after this, the show won't return for another four years. So, this episode starts off with some decent animation of something damaging the reefs. And it's kind of funny that Superman goes after uh, the coral reefs while Aquaman just kind of stands there and do nothing. And then we see some kind of red tide coming in and threatening a bunch of fish. So we have a whole bunch of stuff early on that's going to that appears to be causing some trouble. The red tide threatening the fish and the uh, the reefs getting damaged. Meanwhile, Batman and Robin and the Juniors are messing around on a submarine with a friend of Batman's. Yeah, the oceanographer, Doctor Meter or something like that. I don't remember his name off the top of my head. And one of the dog spots a couple of people walking on water. Maybe something biblical is going on, or as Wendy said, Marvin was daydreaming. Well, the Marvin just kind of denies daydreaming because, after all, Wonder Dog saw it too. So, basically, they're two aliens. They have fins for feet, which makes them easy for them to swim. And, you know, Marvin speculated they had the quote-unquote right equipment to walk on water, and they do have the right equipment to swim through the water as well. And they're extracting silicon from the water, which will turn its color gray from blue. I'm not necessarily sure any kind of seawater is actually blue, at least not the salt water I see in the ocean, which is like very dark, maybe navy blue, or even greenish from the algae. You know, a dirty pool looks a lot a lot like seawater after the algae has overrun it. So the narrator is telling me that Superman is trying to help the people in the storm, and apparently all you see Superman do is go to a local news station and tell him to warn the people that there's going to be a disaster as the reef is about to break. And not only is the reef damaged, but it's also raining, so if that reef breaks, this uh, little town, this little city here is going to flood. So Superman is doing a lot of warning people and basically kind of managing the way buildings fall as he does push one building down. I presume it's empty and damaged. And he uses the remains to plug the brick in the reef. So that is a good use for a building that's been washed away. Just use what's left of it to plug up the reef and save the rest of the city. 
I kind of wish, though, it wasn't raining, as the animation of the raindrops really makes it hard to uh, see the action, see what Superman is doing. And at this point in the episode, the narrator is really not nar- narrating as much as he will be later. I love Ted Knight, but too much of him is too much of him. So Wonder Woman basically uses her plane to uh, net the red tide and pull it away. So at first, uh, you know, I'm speculating here about what the red tide is, and, and my initial guess was that the red tide was the result of what Zara and Hollow were doing. And just as I kind of posed that question, the episode answered the question for me. And extracting the silicon from the ocean is causing the red tide. And apparently they have a mothership uh, somewhere else in the ocean, and they basically what happens is they crashed on Earth after getting caught in a meteor shower. So after Superman saves uh, the city, there are a bunch of starfish on the reef, and I am guessing this is just washed up uh, starfish and not an appearance by Starro the Conqueror. Although wouldn't it be cool if it was? But nope, it's not. Just, but it's not an appearance by Starro. Aquaman, meanwhile, is chasing the red tide and uh, redirecting the fish, which are terrified. And he tells them to go back to where they normally feed. He doesn't know yet the effect that this uh, silicon extraction is having on the ocean. And you'd think he would. Although I'm not sure if they figured out what's happening quite yet. But you would think somebody as sensitive to the ocean with Aquaman would notice the silicon is disappearing from it. So Zahra and Hollow spot Aquaman as he's swimming around, and they wonder who he is, and apparently, according to them, he swims like they do. I'm not sure what that means, but or if there's any kind of kinship between them, but I guess like them, Aquaman can breathe underwater, and he can swim really fast. So how many times do I have to watch Marvin screw around in the invisible jet? I'm kind of waiting for Wonder Woman to catch him in there and string him up with her lasso. And at the uh, submarine table, there is a coloring error. The S on Superman's cape is red and yellow, and then it goes to being all yellow again. Apparently, the uh, starfish are going to uh, break the reef because they're eating it. If something happens to the reef, this is going to screw up the ecology of the ocean, which could elevate this into an extinction-level event. So, there's all that. So, Batman asks his uh, oceanographer buddy here for advice. Professor Manny, you're the expert oceanographer. What do you suggest? Red tide, starfish on the coral reef, migrating fish... There may be a relationship between them. I suggest we look into this. Where do we start? Where Wonder Woman first saw the red tide. All right, we'll split up. I'll stay aboard the submarine and search underwater. Robin will search the surface in the motorboat with Wendy and Marvin. You do swim, don't you, Marvin? Like a fish. You, Wendy? Like a person. (laughs) All right, you come with us, Wonder Dog. And yeah, to me, that was kind of obvious right off the bat there. So Hollow was trying to get Robin's attention, who's on a jet ski, but Robin kind of blows him off. My name is Hollow. I'm only trying to be helpful. You looked as though you were in a hurry. Searching for something? We were till you stopped us. We're headed for the red tide. Well, you're headed the wrong way. It's been shifting with the ocean currents. You mean the red tide has moved? Yes, it's down that way. Last we heard it was this way. Like I said, it moved. When? Yesterday. Wrong. Wonder Woman saw it this way this morning. So long, wise guy. What's the matter? I don't know. Sounds to me like you lost your prop. Robin, he's right. You must have lost it about here. I'll die for it. But Hollow was able to keep up with the boat, and he unscrews a propeller. So they argue for a moment over which direction the red tide is in, and when Robin tries to move, he can't go anywhere. And basically, this was all a distraction so Zara could move the ship, but... You know what? It's going to be hard to uh, hide the ship if red tides are, keep, are going to keep showing up wherever it uh, extracts the silicon. So Superman goes to a film studio to borrow a machine and some of electric cable. And we get a comedic bit that wasn't very funny of a fake horse. Uh, you know, kind of splits in two as uh, the two actors kind of talk from their respective parts of the horse about Superman showing up. 
Right. You know, they didn't know they were filming a Superman movie today. I guess they would just film it on that one day. Stupid writing sometimes. So Superman throws the wire to Wonder Woman, who attaches it to a power pole, and makes Superman grab the giant fan from the film studio, and he basically blows the starship away. Couldn't he have done this with his super breath? I guess the more elaborate plan, the more visually interesting. So meanwhile, Hollow is messing with Robin as he can't find the propeller, you know, likely story. He's just not finding it on purpose. So, getting frustrated, Robin dives in the water and eventually does find the propeller. And I wonder how hard it is to swim in a cape and boots. Can't be very easy. As all well, that extra clothing will just weigh you down. So, in a new location, the ship starts again, creating a new red tide and freaking out the fish again. And this episode is, like I mentioned before, very narration heavy, as Ted Knight kind of translates the, uh, for the fish. As the fish say that the water is different, I'm guessing the uh, silicon taken out of the water is causing some trouble. And then Aquaman kind of takes a bone or something and stirs up the ocean bottom. And that seems to satisfy the fish for now, and they're able to eat a little bit better. And Robin reports seeing Hollow and Wonder Dog corroborates through charades. And then there's more red tide about five miles away. And while all this is discussed, Superman is still fanning. He's holding up this fan and basically walking with it. Batman can do this. Now, the reef is breaking and threatening to flood the city, so Superman grabs a shipwreck and uses that to plug the reef. I guess uh, whenever you need a shipwreck, there's one available, at least for Superman. Robin finds another red tide, and uh, the sub takes samples so they can figure out what's causing it. And this is when Hollow comes out of hiding with his small craft, and we get a chase between Hollow's ship and the sub. Initially, when it was spotted, the professor uh, thought it was a scallop, but Batman identifies it as a spaceship. Because that's why we have Batman around, so that he can monitor these things. Okay, so here are the results of all of our tests. Hollow wasn't born on Earth, and the spaceship is extraterrestrial in nature, and the ship landed in a delta, and the professor tested the red tide, and with no silicon, the fish will starve. So, now we know that this extraction of silicon is making the fish sick. It's going to make them starve. And we also noticed that when the screen turns blue again, indicating that the silicon was back, the fish are happier and eat more. And uh, as you would expect, with the oceans playing such a vital role in this episode, this is a very heavy Aquaman episode. Now, the Watermen have only half the silicon they need, and Hollow is lamenting that the Super Friends are still after them. The Queen is not impressed by Hollow's uh, explanation, and the youth on the ship seem to be suffering from being stuck on the ship. You know, I guess they're getting a little stir-crazy, they can't get out. And now we're going to get a little bit more of a look at the Watermen's technology, as they seem to have little walkers that help them traverse the ocean floor. And now the, uh... The submarine seems to have wormed its way into a little cove here, and all of a sudden, the Batmobile comes off the sub, and they're going to search, search the land. And Batman and Robin initially see a reflection on a hill. Zara and Hollow see the Batmobile coming up, and they wonder why they haven't invented mechanical legs, and actually believe that humans are inferior because they travel on wheels. And we're going to see at some point in this episode that he has a point, because there will be a disadvantage, as we're going to see in a few minutes, to the Batmobile having wheels. And these walkers can really move, and they play a game of chicken, and the walker jumps over the Batmobile. So I guess in that instance, legs can be an advantage, as the walker is just able to jump over the rocks, where the Batmobile could not. So Hollow goes back to the ship as Batman and Robin watch. And then here comes the rest of the team all of a sudden, as Superman goes over the lake and finds the ship. Aquaman dives into the water with Wonder Woman's help. They net the ship and bring it to land. And it's kind of funny in this last scene here, watching everybody converge on the spaceship. They can't wait to open this uh, new mysterious present that the uh, universe has bestowed upon them. So, out comes the aliens, they want to be friends, and everybody is confused. And when the commander mentions that she didn't think humans cared enough about the ocean, Wendy makes a pollution crack. You know, cared enough about the ocean to notice that the silicon was missing. 
So the Super Friends are going to give them a silicon from beach sand without destroying the ocean, and then everybody's going to go play water polo, I guess, in celebration. So this episode was kind of laborious. As usual, the villains weren't really villainous, they just needed some help, and they went about it in the wrong way. The aliens don't know how to ask for help, they just take what they want, and like I, like I mentioned before, I guess it's easier to uh, ask forgiveness than permission. So, next time, with this being the end of Super Friends Season 1, I will begin the all-new Super Friends Hour Season 2 in early June. But next time, I will cover the 1975 Superman musical, based on It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, which initially starred uh, Bob Holiday. the ABC version does not. And I'm going to cover that one next week. So if you want to send feedback on the show, write your email to manofscreen at gmail.com. You can join the conversation over the Facebook group. Put Man of Screen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. Also find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. And please uh, leave me a review over on Apple Podcasts. That helps others find the show. So until next time, folks, have a good one. Take care. Bye. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you do, the two true freaks get a little cut of what you buy, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you can shop as usual and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Emails of this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.